Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 23 and 24. Uh, I'm, not simp- I'm going to go back a bit. Uh, the last time we were together, we were on Good Friday, uh, the crucifixion, and so I'm, I'm going to pick up the reading just as Jesus has breathed his last and, and sort of move from there uh, through Saturday and then into Resurrection Sunday. So Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in a stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about these things, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter ran and rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I've been... I want, I've entitled my sermon, The Final Words and the First Witnesses, because I'm struck, first of all, that there are three significant kingdoms that feel they have spoken their final word. They, they've, they've put an end to this talk of Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, nonsense. And the first of that, of course, is the king, the kingdom of Rome, probably the arguably in many ways one of the greatest empires that history has ever seen. They had total sovereignty over the known world at that time, and certainly total sovereignty in the, in the nation of, of Israel. And the crucifixion, was the, the cross, was their symbol of their absolute sovereignty and authority over all temporal things. They ruled all of normal life. For people, and if you stepped out of the rules, 
That's where you ended up. And it, and it was, as Luke said, a spectacle. They did it in public on a hill as a lesson, not just as a punishment for the individual, but as a lesson to everyone. This is the final word when you cross Rome. And in many ways, the stone feels to me like a representation of that kingdom. The stone is hard. It is unmovable. It is rigid. It's not going anywhere. That was the kingdom of Rome. They crushed anyone that came against them. The second kingdom is the council or the Sanhedrin, the, the group of, of, of uh, men that, that ruled Jewish life in Jerusalem at that time. They, they, they represent spiritual authority. They, they said they spoke for God. And they had used their spiritual authority to make a judgment about Jesus and said, this man is a heretic. He is blasphemed because he has called himself equal with God. And their final word is of judgment is portrayed in the fact that Jesus' burial is incomplete. His body is not allowed the final honors. He's put into the nearest tomb, and the spices and all of those things have to wait. Why? Because the Sabbath starts at 6 p.m. And so though, even though the women would want to do that, the people around Jesus would want to honor his death and his body. The, the, the spiritual authorities have spoken to say, no, that can't happen. This man, not, not only is he uh, not speaking uh, for God, but he is speaking against what we know to be the spiritual authority of our place. And so his body is improperly buried and left so that the, the more important things, the Sabbath can continue. And then finally, of course, is the kingdom of death represented by the tomb. That Jesus no longer has any autonomy or freedom to do anything for himself. His body is taken down from the cross. He is wrapped in a shroud and placed in that tomb. Death now has, has spoken. It's, it's a final word. And so these kingdoms, the temporal authority, the spiritual authority, and the authority of the evil one, they would like us to believe that's the last word. It, 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 the stone, the tomb, buried, it's over. But it's, it strikes me that there are already cracks in those, two, in those final words. It's not as solid as it first looks. The centurion, uh, the representative of the kingdom of Rome, says, certainly this man is innocent. He starts off with the full authority of Rome, but by the end he's already backing up and saying, we've done something here that we didn't understand. It's not quite as simple as the Roman authorities would have it. Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the council. He's part of that spiritual authority, but Luke says, but he had not agreed to their decision and action. See, it wasn't a unanimous decision by the council. It was a decision of, of a portion of that spiritual authority that wanted to run something through before the Passover was going to start. But Joseph comes and has, has, is, is setting himself up against that decision and saying, I didn't have the power to stop that decision, but I am, I am going to move against it anyways. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do right by this man. 
And then, of course, when the, when the women come to the tomb, it's empty. The stone has been rolled away. Even death does not have a final word. In fact, the final word, the final word for us as Christians is resurrection. It's, it's, it's resurrection that speaks against physical might and, and sovereignty or false sovereignty. There is only one sovereign king, and that is Jesus. That, that regardless of what the temporal authorities might say, the final word is spoken by Jesus, who will, who, who will, uh, who will reign uh, um, with all kingdoms, all other temporal authorities bowing at his feet. In resurrection, the angels speak. They come and bring heavenly light and message into the darkness of the tomb. They, this, the, the, the Jewish council said, we speak for God. The angels came and said, we speak from God. The, the word angel means a messenger, a messenger from God. This was not now an interpretation of what God said in the past, but what God was saying immediately in the present. And, and so now we have true spiritual authority. We don't have an interpretation of a spiritual idea, but we have heaven speaking directly to the women at the tomb. And then finally, there are the words of Jesus. Death has said, I have the final word over Jesus. But, but the angels say, remember his words. Why are his words important? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, it's the word of God that speaks things into existence. John tells us that it's, it's Jesus, the word of God, that spoke creation. It's Jesus, his words themselves are life. And so it is as the angels don't just bring the message, uh, they speak the message of heaven, but they remind them of the very words of Jesus. Because the real words of life are his. And he speaks them into the tomb. And so this must be our hope. This must be what we are clear on as Christians, that our, our confidence and our, our, our hope um, in life is not based on sort of a, a, a good spiritual, theological, religious set of ideas. It's, it's resting in a very uh, concrete, specific, physical Change a resurrection of a dead body, an empty tomb. That's where our hope rests. It's, it's a, it speaks the final word over all other authorities, and it will, it, it will, the culmination of that single resurrection of that one person, Jesus, will culminate in the end of all things with the resurrection of all things. The, the final culmination of all that God has been working on since Genesis chapter 3 and the fall. So it strikes me that this resurrection is not seen or revealed to the kingdom of Rome. That the kingdom of Rome have dismissed him. They're already done with him. He's forgotten. He's just a crackpot that they've dealt with as they've dealt with all, all the rest. And they'll, do, and they'll do it with the next one when he, when he comes around. So Rome does not see the resurrection. The council 
If they're thinking about Jesus at all, they're thinking about him as we defeated him. It's a bit of a victory party. We finally got rid of this, this irritant in, in our Jewish world that, that was always challenging us about the Sabbath and about the temple and about how, what was God saying to our people. And so they, had to, they were, <coughs> Jesus was already, if they were thinking about him all, it was in victory over him. And even the disciples, the twelve, don't see the resurrection first. It's the women who see it first. Now the disciples, Peter at least had denied him. Most of the rest appear to have deserted him. But they are, I think, overall, if, we, if you look at the gospel accounts, they're disillusioned. They have rec- they, they, not only has Jesus died, but their whole uh, ex- expectation around the kingdom of God has died with them. And they, they are f- trying to figure out what's plan B. And so in John chapter 21, Peter and, and some of his buddies go back to fishing. Because what do you do when all your, you put all your eggs in that basket and that basket gets crushed? Well, you go back to what you know. And you settle for fishing. It's better than nothing. So the question I want to ask is why the women? Why were the women the first witnesses to the resurrection? Why is it to them that, 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 that Jesus chooses to reveal first? Because they have no temporal authority. They have no authority in terms of the physical world. In fact, throughout most of the crucifixion, they're, they're standing at the back row, watching things from a distance. They, they, have no, they, they have no physical power to roll away the stone. They have no authority in that physical realm. They have no authority in the spiritual realm. They, they can lament and mourn, but they don't have voice with the council. They don't have voice in the Jewish world. And in fact, their voice doesn't have credibility even with, the, with their own group. Even with the other disciples, their words are not believed. It was seen to them, to the twelve, or the eleven, as idle tales. Quit making stuff up, is what the disciples said. And of course, they didn't have, any more than the rest of us, any ultimate authority over death. All they could do was prepare to honor the body of Jesus. And so they went that uh, Saturday evening uh, and spent, uh, spent the Sabbath preparing the spices and came early, as early as they could come, on Sunday morning to the tomb. So why them? They have no... They have no authority in any of those realms. Why are they the first to see and, and be, have God speak to them of the resurrection? It seems to me that at least one of the reasons the women see it first is because they are prepared to face the reality of the death. They're prepared to go with their spices into the tomb and put their hands on the body. They're prepared to face death directly. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if we expect to see resurrection 
in our lives, we first have to recognize what has died. The disciples want, they want to stay in it, they want to keep it at a distance and just pretend it was all a bad dream. And, and we can do that, can't we? We can spend a great deal of energy with a false sense of, that's not really death, it's better than it seems, or I don't really want to look at that, I'll just leave it be, maybe it'll just go away. But what the women did was they came to the tomb prepared to face the, the, the tragedy, tragedy and the agony of the death of their Lord and teacher. But they also seem to be able to be led very quickly to consider again Jesus' words. So they have not, although they face death, they haven't given in to death. When the angels speak to them about, can't, don't you remember what Jesus said? It seems that Luke is suggesting their hearts were at least, they didn't get there all the way in one step. But their hearts were still open. They lived in that tension between what Jesus has said and what, what their, the hopes that had been uh, held by Jesus' words at the same time as being prepared to face death, to do what was necessary in some ways. They stayed engaged with life. It's, it, it troubles me that, that my own sense of resurrection seems um, a bit wobbly. And yet, I'm encouraged then by the women because it seems that way there as well. That, that perhaps, perhaps the first sign that you have faith for resurrection is to acknowledge what's, what's in fact dead. And so a few questions for you to consider. What's the true state of your physical or spiritual life right now? Is there something in your life that has been moving in the direction of death <coughs> but you've just not wanted to look there? And is it, is it time in these weeks of Easter for you to acknowledge and come to sort of uh, face the hard reality that unless there's a resurrection there, I am... I am without authority, I am without autonomy, I, I am without sovereignty over that. I'm going to stop pretending that, it'll, that it's going to work itself out or it's not really bothering me. But there's something dead there. And I wonder what have the other authorities spoken over areas of your life? Is there part of your life that you've put in a tomb because some authority said, oh, that's never going to work? That's never going to happen. That, that's dead. Have you accepted the voice of, a, of a, an apparently final authority, perhaps even a, a, a spiritual authority? Perhaps there's been a, a, a minister in your life that spoke something over your life that said, no, that's not. And then could you begin over these next weeks as we stay in the resurrection? through most of the month of April, 
to notice that there might be some cracks appearing in those final words. That there might be some glimmers, that there might be something else is happening, and that you might begin to ask and believe for resurrection. Not the, not the refurbishing of something to look at, make it look more alive, but that external resurrection power would come from heaven and inhabit that part of your life. We need resurrection. We, we are perhaps feeling it more now than ever. Where would you ask for resurrection? What do you need from Jesus right now?